This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So St. Thomas Aquinas' earliest or most important uh, biographer, William of Toko, writes about our saint. He was especially devout towards the most holy sacrament of the altar, about which, since it had been granted to him to write more profoundly, so it was given to him to celebrate more devoutly. For every day he used to say one Mass, and also hear another. Moreover, he had become accustomed rather frequently to be wrapped at Mass by such a great affection of devotion that he would be completely bathed in tears. But the way that most Catholics today know about St. Thomas's Eucharistic devotion is not through the early biographies of his life, but through the hymns that he composed for the office of Corpus Christi. So just a brief history of this feast. In 1209, St. Juliana of Liege had a series of visions of the moon with a piece missing. And after praying to understand what these visions meant, the Lord explained to her, and this is a quotation uh, from the Vita Juliana, the moon represented the church, but the dark area at the edge intimated that a feast day was still missing, one which he, meaning the Lord, wished to see celebrated by all the faithful. It was his will that the institution of the Most Holy Sacrament receive its own proper celebration. Then, ultimately in 1264, Pope Urban IV inaugurated the Feast of Corpus Christi for the Universal Church. And what is most important for our purposes is that Pope Urban entrusted St. Thomas Aquinas with writing the office for the feast, which he did, including all of the hymns. And many practicing Catholics today know by heart, O Salutaris Hostia and Tantum Ergo Sacramentum, which are the concluding stanzas of the hymns that he composed for lauds and vespers for the feast. And so St. Thomas Aquinas' thought about the Eucharist is extremely important, not only because of its significance for Catholic theology, but also because it's become a perennial component of the Church's liturgical life. So St. Thomas has written uh, far more about the Eucharist than we could possibly discuss in one weekend, let alone one conference. And so I'm going to focus somewhat less on his speculative theology or the more metaphysically heavy parts and focus a little bit more on what pertains to Eucharistic devotion. So devotion for St. Thomas is a readiness in the will to serve God through acts of worship, and devotion is caused by considering things that lead us to the love of God. So I'm going to highlight certain elements of St. Thomas's teaching that I think are most helpful for stirring up devotion. And this is perhaps a rather Franciscan thing to do at a retreat hosted by a Dominican Institute, but I'll be using St. Thomas's thoughts, so hopefully we'll get the best of both worlds. So if you spent any time with the Dominicans, you may be, well, you are familiar now with the prayer O Sacrum Convivium, uh, which St. Thomas composed as an antiphon for Vespers, for Corpus Christi. And I have it on your handouts. You also have it in your liturgy booklets. O sacred banquet in which Christ is received, the memory of his passion is recalled, The mind is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given us. And I think that this antiphon can serve as a good framework for a conference on the Eucharist. And in this antiphon, uh, you'll notice that St. Thomas does four things. First, he identifies what's happening at the banquet. Christ is received. Then he looks back to the past. The memory of his passion is recalled. 
Then he looks to the present. The mind is filled with grace. And then he looks towards the future and a pledge of future glory is given to us. And so this antiphon draws our attention to how the Eucharist incorporates us fully into salvation history. It's the mystery of faith that immerses us most perfectly, most completely in the stream of grace that flowed from the side of Christ and then flows on into our heavenly homeland. And so we'll follow the same order of this antiphon and consider what St. Thomas thinks the Eucharist is, how it recalls Christ's passion, its primary effect on us when we receive it, and its relation to eternal life. And as we go along, and especially in conclusion, I'll offer a few recommendations for how we can grow in our own Eucharistic devotion based on St. Thomas's teaching. <clears throat> so first of all, what is the Eucharist? The Eucharist is food, spiritual food. Jesus says in John 6, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. For St. Thomas, material things resemble spiritual things, and so the matter of the sacraments resemble their spiritual reality. The matter of the sacrament of the Eucharist is bread and wine, which are common food and drink. And this informs us that this sacrament is for our spiritual nourishment. Just as we are spiritually washed in baptism, so God has given us spiritual food and drink in the sacrament of the Eucharist to preserve our spiritual life. But bread and wine in themselves don't suffice to nourish us spiritually, and our spiritual life is nourished by grace. <clears throat> and the sacraments are signs that cause grace, and so the Eucharist cannot be merely bread and wine. Right? That wouldn't be enough to nourish us spiritually. And so the form of the sacrament consists in the words of consecration pronounced by the priest over the bread and wine, or priests if they're concelebrating. <laughs> And these words inform us that the whole substance of bread is changed into the whole substance of the body of Christ. And the whole substance of the wine is changed into the whole substance of the blood of Christ. And this kind of substantial change is entirely beyond the power of creatures. So it can be worked by God alone. And St. Thomas uses the term transubstantiation to describe this unique kind of change worked by God alone in the sacrament. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit and the instrumentality of the words of consecration pronounced by the priest or priests, the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of the Lord. Now during Christ's passion, his blood poured out from his body and at his death, his soul was separated from his body. But now that Christ has been raised from the dead, there are no more such separations. His body, blood, soul, and divinity are no longer in any way separate. Right? This means that wherever Christ's body is present, so also is his blood. And wherever his blood is present, so also is his body. And wherever his body and his blood are, so is his soul. And wherever his body, blood, and soul are, there is his divinity. And hence, we often and rightly say that we receive in the Eucharist the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And so St. Thomas makes a distinction. He says, by the power of the sacrament, the bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine becomes the blood of Christ. But on account of what he calls natural concomitance, there's the whole Christ 
under both species of the Eucharist. This is why when we receive only the consecrated host, we don't receive any less of Christ than if we received also from the chalice. The priests or priests receive under both species for the ultimate completion of the sacrament. But when we receive even one of the Eucharistic species, uh, when we receive under one of the Eucharistic species, we still receive Christ holy. Of course, Christ is not visible in the sacrament. Immediately after the respective words of consecration, the bread and wine are uh, transubstantiated into Christ's body and blood, but the accidents of the bread and wine remain. And so St. Thomas says that in no way can our senses discern what is present under the appearance of bread and wine. Faith alone informs our intellect about who is truly present, Christ himself. Now this means that the Eucharist is different from every other sacrament. Through the other sacraments, God gives us grace, but this sacrament contains Christ himself, who came into the world to give grace. This means that when we receive the Eucharist, we are not merely receiving grace, we are receiving Christ himself. In my opinion, one of the most powerful words that Jesus speaks to St. Faustina, which are recorded in her Divine Mercy Diary, Uh, is uh, these words are about how Christ himself comes to souls in the Eucharist and how he also comes with graces. And so I'll just give you this quotation. This is from Divine Mercy Diary, paragraph 1385. Jesus says, I desire to unite myself with human souls. My great delight is to unite myself with souls. Know, my daughter, that when I come to a human heart in Holy Communion, My hands are full of all kinds of graces which I want to give to the soul. But souls do not even pay any attention to me. They leave me to myself and busy themselves with other things. Oh, how sad I am that souls do not recognize love. He goes on to say, they treat me as a dead object. And so St. Thomas prays, O sacred banquet in which Christ is received. And he goes on to pray, the memory of his passion is recalled. For St. Thomas, faith in the passion of Christ is necessary for salvation. And so God has ensured that there would be at all times some representation of the passion on earth. So prior to the incarnation, God instituted the Passover in which a lamb was sacrificed every year. And this was the chief sacrament of the old covenant, which pointed forward to Jesus's sacrifice. Then, of course, when Christ comes, he's called the Lamb and our Pasch, and he offered himself as a sacrifice once for all so that we could be saved through faith in his blood. And so on the eve of his passion at the Last Supper, Christ himself established the Eucharist as a memorial of his passion and death to be the chief sacrament of the new covenant. Which means that right now in the age of the church, which is the current and final age of history, The Eucharist is the permanent and divinely willed representation of Christ's passion. And so for St. Thomas, it's absolutely essential that when we consider the Eucharist, we look back to the passion. The sacrament was instituted by Christ to be a reminder of his passion for our salvation. And Christ explained the essential connection, or indicated the essential connection of the sacrament with his passion, in the very words of consecration, when he said, this is my body, which will be given up for you. And this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you. 
and for many. For the forgiveness of sins, do this in memory of me. Now, St. Thomas sees Christ's passion represented in this sacrament, not only in the words of consecration, but especially in the twofold form of the consecration. In the passion, the blood of Christ was poured out from his wounded body, and so his blood was separated from his body. And so in the sacrament of the Eucharist, the wine is consecrated separately from the bread. So we have a kind of visible reminder of the passion of the Lord. This explains also why we have mention of the shedding of Christ's blood in the consecration of the wine, since it recalls the separation of his blood from his body during his passion. St. Thomas sees the passion signified also in the priest who celebrates this sacrament. Since transubstantiation occurs through the instrumentality of the words of Christ, the priest who celebrates the sacrament must be acting in persona Christi when he celebrates the sacrament. Just as Christ offered himself as both priest and victim on the cross, we see in the Eucharistic elements Christ the victim, but we see especially in the priest, Christ acting as the priest, offering the sacrifice to God. St. Thomas sees the passion signified in other parts of the Mass as well. Most importantly, the priest makes the sign of the cross over the bread and wine. And according to older rituals for the Mass, the priest does this many times, both before and after the consecration. And St. Thomas gives a detailed account, uh, you know, giving a meaning to each time the priest makes a sign of the cross, or at least suggesting a meaning that we can understand from each, uh, you know, sign of the cross that the priest makes. Uh, but the main point is that the Mass, the whole Mass centers on the sacrifice of the Eucharist. And so the priest's repeated signs of the cross remind us of the sacrifice of Christ, which is being represented in the sacrament. And since the Eucharist is a representation of the sacrifice of Christ, inasmuch as it refers to the past, it, it is itself called a sacrifice. So the Eucharist is a sacrament, but it's also a sacrifice. Who benefits from the Eucharist? As a sacrament, it benefits those who receive it, which is why the priest prays at Mass, all of us who through this participation at the altar receive the most holy body and blood of your Son, may be filled with every grace and heavenly blessing. And as a sacrifice, it benefits the whole church, which is why the priest prays, remember, Lord, your servants, for them we offer you this sacrifice of praise, or they offer it for themselves and for all who are dear to them. And in fact, St. Thomas thinks that Christ makes it clear in the very words of consecration that the Eucharist is effective both for those who receive the sacrament and for the whole church, when he says in the words of consecration, this is my body which is given up for you and for many. And so even if the faithful don't receive the Eucharist, its very celebration bears fruit for the whole church. And this brings us to the next part of St. Thomas's Antiphon, the mind or the soul is filled with grace. We should consider not only the passion, which is in the past, but also the effect of receiving the sacrament in the present. And so in the Summa, when St. Thomas considers the effects of the sacrament, not surprisingly, he says that the first is grace. And how do we know that the sacrament gives grace? Because Christ says, the bread which I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. And spiritual life is the life of grace. And it makes sense that the Eucharist bestows grace it contains Jesus Christ himself who came into the world to give grace. And the sacrament is a 
representation of the passion. And so it brings the fruits of the passion to those who receive it. So it's not surprising that the sacrament increases grace in the soul. What I uh, found more fascinating in St. Thomas's treatment on the Eucharist in the Summa is how he sees this sacrament promoting in us the theological virtues, which are among the most important flowerings of grace in the soul. Now, so as Father Tom said in his conference yesterday, grace is a participation in the divine nature. But for St. Thomas, uh, if you look at kind of how he treats grace, what, what he's most concerned about uh, is he sees grace as being given to us so that we can live in a supernatural way. So that we can perform acts that, uh, especially of believing, hoping in, and loving God beyond our own natural power. And so I think that what St. Thomas has to say about the Eucharist and the theological virtues is important for understanding what he thinks about how the Eucharist gives life. So first of all, St. Thomas thinks that the Eucharist was instituted so that we could exercise our faith more perfectly. Faith is about things unseen. If we could see them, we wouldn't need faith. During his earthly life, Jesus Christ's humanity was visible, but his divinity was not. And so faith was necessary to believe in his divinity, which could not be seen. But in the Eucharist, not only can Christ's divinity not be seen, but also his humanity cannot be seen. This is why St. Thomas prays in Adoro Te Devote, which you may have heard, On the cross, thy Godhead made no sign to men. Here, thy very manhood steals from human ken. Both are my confession, both are my belief. And I pray the prayer of the dying thief. I am not like Thomas, wounds I cannot see, but I plainly call thee Lord and God as he. Let me to a deeper faith daily nearer move. So the Eucharist gives us an opportunity to exercise our faith in Christ more perfectly. St. Thomas also calls the sacrament the uplifter of our hope. The fact that we're so familiarly united with Christ in this sacrament gives us hope for being united with him eternally. If you're a woman and a guy never asks you to go on a date, you're not going to have much hope of being married to him. But if a particular guy asks you out regularly... It rightly and reasonably builds your hope that he in fact wants or might want you to be with him for the rest of your life. And it's similar here. Christ gives himself to us regularly in the Eucharist so that we'll have the confidence that he wants us to be with him forever. But even more than faith and hope, for St. Thomas, the Eucharist is the sacrament of charity. St. Thomas calls it a sacrament of faith because we need faith to appreciate it, to understand it. But he calls it a sacrament of charity because the Eucharist increases charity in us. How does the Eucharist cause charity in us? Seems to me that there are at least two ways. Uh, First of all, for St. Thomas, our love is kindled when we consider Christ's love for us. And when we consider the institution of this sacrament, we see that it's the supreme sign of his charity. Jesus didn't just leave us a symbol of his body. He left us himself. It belongs to the love of friendship to live together. But certainly in heaven, uh, certainly in heaven we'll enjoy the bodily presence of the Lord. But even during our life on earth, Jesus didn't deprive us of his bodily presence. And St. Louis de Montfort writes in one of his lesser-known works, Love of Eternal Wisdom, is paragraph 71. 
Eternal wisdom, on the one hand, wished to prove his love for man by dying in his place in order to save him. But on the other hand, he could not bear the thought of leaving him. And so he devised a marvelous way of abiding with man until the end of time. So in order to fully satisfy his love, he instituted the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist and went to the extent of changing and overturning nature itself. He does not conceal himself under a sparkling diamond or some other precious stone because he does not want to abide with man in an ostentatious manner, but he hides himself under the appearance of a small piece of bread, man's ordinary nourishment, so that when received, he might enter the heart of man and there take his delight. Ardenter amantium hoc est. Those who love ardently act in this way. O eternal wisdom, says a saint, O God, who is truly lavish with himself, in his desire to be with man. So when we consider the love with which Christ gives himself to us in the sacrament, as well as his passion, which he suffered for us and which this sacrament represents, it inspires our love for him in return. It is really the sacrament of his love for us. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. But at least in the treatise on the Eucharist, St. Thomas focuses more on how this sacrament acts directly upon us by increasing the virtue of charity in us and exciting us to an active love. And perhaps you recall the vision that Isaiah had of the throne room of God. And one of the seraphim takes a burning coal from the altar and touches it to the prophet's mouth. St. John Damascene says that the Eucharist is like that burning coal. For a burning coal is not simply wood, but is united to fire. So also the bread of communion is not simply bread, but united to the divinity. Those are the words of St. John Damascene. And so St. Thomas, it seems to me, thinks that being united to Christ's divinity through the sacrament brings about an increase in charity. But again, not just an increase of the virtue that makes us able to love God, but receiving the Eucharist actually stirs us to the very act of love. So St. Thomas says, By the power of the sacrament, the soul is spiritually refreshed. Through this, that the soul is delighted, and in a certain way inebriated with the sweetness of divine goodness. According to Song of Songs 5, Eat, my friends, and drink, and be inebriated, my dearly beloved. So love is always a response to goodness. And so contact with the divinity of Christ, which is goodness itself, and the delight that this causes stirs us to love God in return, actualiter, actually, actively. St. Thomas says the reality of the sacrament is charity, not only with respect to habit, but also with respect to act, which is excited in the sacrament. You know, sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that we have to bring everything to the table with God. And naturally, we want to bring our love to Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, but we shouldn't have a Pelagian attitude. The sacraments are remedies. They're gifts and helps through which God gives us grace. And so we shouldn't wait to come to the Eucharist until we have some experience of burning charity. On the contrary, we grow in charity by receiving the Eucharist. We can't have love in our hearts unless God puts it there. And the most effective way to grow in charity is to receive it directly from Christ in the sacrament. To receive the burning coal of the Eucharist on our lips. 
Now, charity is primarily directed toward God, but if we consider the Eucharist only as a private treasure for ourselves as individuals, and as it were unrelated to the rest of the church, we'd have a very incomplete and unbalanced understanding of this sacrament. And I understand that younger, faith-filled Catholics, which I hope I'm included in that number, may be suspicious about discussions of the Eucharist in relation to the church for a number of reasons. Right after the Second Vatican Council, the church began paying more attention to the presence of Christ in the worshiping community. And unfortunately, this was often at the expense of appreciation for Christ's real presence in the Blessed Sacrament. And so tabernacles were moved to side chapels. In the last century, witnessed a tragic and tremendous loss of reverence toward the Eucharist. Also, the song One Bread, One Body was published in 1978. <laughs> and it has been played approximately 100 million times since then. Now, those are, you know, those are my own numbers. I don't have exact statistics. Uh, and I don't have anything against the song itself. But my point is that there are some Orthodox Catholics may have a kind of aversion towards considering any essential relations between the Eucharist and the church. You know, you can kind of shy away from that. Oh, we really just want to talk about Christ's presence. But, you know, maybe we do not. We don't want to go too much into talking about his relation to the church. But for St. Thomas, the sacrament of the Eucharist is profoundly related to the church. This treatise on the Eucharist in the Summa is quite massive, 84 articles long. And yet, in only the second article, at the beginning of the whole treatise, he says, quote, The apostle says in 1 Corinthians 10, We being many are one bread and one body, all who partake of one bread and one chalice, from which it is clear that the Eucharist is the sacrament of ecclesiastical unity. And this is the first time that St. Thomas makes a kind of definitive statement like that. The Eucharist is X, Y, or Z. And the first time he makes a kind of statement like that in his treatise on the Eucharist, he's saying the Eucharist is the sacrament of ecclesiastical unity. So what does it mean for the Eucharist to be the sacrament of the church's unity? It seems to me that St. Thomas has two things in mind. First, the Eucharist is a sign of the church's unity. And second, the Eucharist is, the cause of, is a cause of the church's unity. The Eucharist is a sign of the church's unity primarily because of, uh, we see this especially in the matter of the sacrament, which is bread and wine. St. Thomas says that the church, and he's drawing from the Glossa Ordinaria, is the church is constituted by many faithful as bread is composed from many grains and wine flows from many grapes. And so the bread and the wine in their respective constitutions symbolize the unity of the members of the church. St. Thomas goes on, it goes so far as to say that the, Eucharist, the sacrament of the Eucharist signifies two things, the true body of Christ and the mystical body of Christ, which is the church. And so when we see the Eucharistic species of bread and wine, our minds should turn to both Christ and the church. Christ, who gave his flesh as food for the life of the world, and the church, which is his body made of many members. St. Thomas says, Quote, just so you know, I'm not making this up. There is a twofold reality of the sacrament, one which is signified and contained, namely Christ himself, while the other is signified but not contained, namely Christ's mystical body, which is the fellowship of the saints. Therefore, whoever receives this sacrament expresses thereby that he is made one with Christ and incorporated into his members. So when we receive the Eucharist, would you like me to read that quote again? 
I'll read that quote again. <laughs> there is a twofold reality of this sacrament, one which is signified and contained, namely Christ himself, while the other is signified but not contained, namely Christ's mystical body, which is the fellowship of the saints. Therefore, whoever receives this sacrament expresses thereby that he is made one with Christ and incorporated into his members. And so when we receive the Eucharist, it's a public profession of our union with Christ and our union with the church. Which is why it would be a grave sin to receive the Eucharist while not being in communion with Christ or the church. And so if you're not in full communion with the Catholic Church, I would, of course, invite you to enter or return to full communion. In the meantime, I would advise you not to receive communion at a Catholic Mass until that point since doing so would be, in St. Thomas's words, lying to the sacrament. But for those of you who are already in full communion with the church, and for those who are seeking it, I'll offer a related but different recommendation for you to uh, take home with you. I think we would, be, we would do well to be at peace with one another, as much as it is in our power as a preparation for receiving communion. As a matter of fact, this is the reason for the sign of peace at Mass. This came up in our conversation last night. The liturgical movement of the 19th and 20th centuries recovered a practice of the early church of exchanging a sign of peace, which was more or less suppressed among the laity for a number of centuries. Among others, St. Augustine describes the practice, quote, after the consecration of the holy sacrifice of God, because he wished us also to be his sacrifice, and because that sacrifice is a sign of what we are, behold, the peace be with you is said, and the Christians embraced one another with the holy kiss. And the early church derived this practice from the command of Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I know that some people are scandalized by the sign of peace, especially as is exchanged in the ordinary form of the Mass or the Novus Ordo, especially, uh, you know, as it often seems to distract our attention from the Eucharist. But Christ gives the startling advice, leave your gift there before the altar. Now, obviously, the sign of peace can be done in more or less fitting ways, right? I don't intend to ignite a liturgical debate here. Although that, you know, is beyond my power to stop if it begins. <laughs> Christ's words also, I think, could perhaps be taken as referring to the sacrifices of the old covenant. Although you wonder why and why it would be carried in the Gospels. I'm just speculating here in my, my own mind. Um, so I don't intend to be asserting that the laity always have to be exchanging a sign of peace during the liturgy. That's not my point. My point is that since the Eucharist signifies the unity of the mystical body, we should strive for peace with one another in order to receive communion worthily. And the sign of peace in the different ways that has been practiced in the liturgy for thousands of years bears witness to this. Right? The importance of being at peace with one another right? because of what the Eucharist signifies. But the Eucharist not only indicates the unity of the church, it also brings it about. When considering the significance of the Eucharist uh, in relation to the past, St. Thomas says that it's a sacrifice. But in light of its significance for the present, it's called communion. 
And I think he gets this from St. John Damascene, who says it is called communion because we communicate with Christ through it and because we participate in his flesh and deity and because we communicate and are united with one another through it. So the Eucharist is called communion because it brings about communion with Christ and communion with the other members of the church. But how does it do this? Uh, the explanation is, is there in St. Thomas, but the argument is, is subtle. Uh, St. Augustine observed that the bread and wine are made from many grapes, uh, grains and grapes, and he calls the sacrament the bond of charity. It's charity that binds us together. Uh, the Eucharist binds us together by giving us charity. In other words, when we're united to Christ through the sacrament, we're bound together in love for one another by the love that Christ himself communicates to us and increases in us. So Christ is the head of the mystical body. That means that grace comes to us through him. And grace is the source of our faith and love, which makes us members of his mystical body. And so when we're united to Christ in the Eucharist and receive from him and through the merits of his passion, uh, when we receive grace from him, we're built up in love. And that love that we receive embraces all those who, like ourselves, hopefully are united to him through faith and love. I know it's precarious to mention this man's name at a Dominican function, but Henri de Lubac was onto something when he said that for the early Christians, the Eucharist makes the church. And St. Thomas understood this line of thinking from St. Paul. And so in the prayer that he composes before communion, St. Thomas says, Give me the grace, most merciful God, to receive the body of your only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, in such a manner that I may deserve to be intimately united with his mystical body and to be numbered among his members. And I think it's quite striking that in St. Thomas's prayer before communion, he gives such a prominent place to being united with the mystical body of Christ. For St. Thomas, you can't separate the church from the Eucharist any more than you can separate Christ from his mystical body. Right? The one sacrament of the Eucharist signifies Christ, both head and members. Moving on uh, in O Sacrum Convivium, after mentioning the principal effect of the Eucharist in the present, which is the communication of grace, St. Thomas says a pledge of future glory is given to us. And so he sets his eyes toward the future. Jesus Christ says in John 6, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so in the Summa, immediately after discussing how the Eucharist conveys grace, St. Thomas discusses another effect of the Eucharist, the attainment of eternal glory. And this shouldn't be too surprising to us. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we can participate in eternal life which begins in a hidden way in this life and is perfected in heaven. And the Eucharist is the representation of Christ's passion. And so the fruits of his passion, including eternal life, are communicated to us through the Eucharist. This means that provided we don't turn away from God through sin, the grace given to us by the Eucharist will conduct us to heaven. And in fact, every time we receive the Eucharist, we are further strengthened in goodness, our venial sins are forgiven, we are protected from sin and the devil, which would hinder us on our way. And so when the Eucharist is considered in light of the passion in the past, it's called a sacrifice. When the Eucharist is considered in light of its uniting us to Christ in the church in the present, it is called communion. But when the Eucharist is considered in light of its leading us to eternal life in the future, it is called viaticum, which means food for the journey, 
right? food for those of us who are in via. I think we can uh, now consider some practical takeaways from St. Thomas's teaching about the Eucharist. The first is that we should try to attend the Eucharistic sacrifice as often as we can, and what I'm going to focus on, receiving communion as often as we're properly disposed. As you may know, in medieval Europe, lay people only received communion a few times a year. Even St. Francis of Assisi, who may have been a deacon, only received about six times a year. And so it's very striking to read St. Thomas's repeated recommendations in the Summa that we should receive the Eucharist every day. St. Thomas understands that during certain periods in the church's history, it can be useful to regulate how often the faithful receive communion, but he clearly thinks that the ideal is to receive every day. He says, this sacrament is spiritual food. Hence, just as bodily food is taken every day, so it is praiseworthy to take this sacrament every day. Hence, the Lord taught us to pray in Luke 11, give us this day our daily bread. And St. Augustine rightly comments, this is your daily bread, take it daily, so that it will profit you daily. And St. Anselm said, if whenever the blood of Christ is poured out, it is poured out for the remission of sins, I, who regularly sin, ought to regularly receive it. I ought to regularly have a remedy. St. Thomas even sees a type of this in the Old Testament when God gave the manna in the desert every day for the sustenance of his people, which prefigured the daily bread of the Eucharist for the church. And so St. Thomas concludes, it is not expedient for all to approach this sacrament every day, but they should do so as often as they find themselves properly disposed. And what are the proper dispositions? From what I could gather from the Summa, these conditions and dispositions are especially freedom from serious sin, in as far as we have, you know, moral certitude about that. And, uh, all right, I'm going to remove that qualification. The correct disposition is to receive without serious sin. Um, I added the qualification because we can never have absolute certitude uh, about our moral state. Um, and the greatest devotion and reverence. So what should we do if we're hesitant about receiving? Uh, maybe we're concerned that we don't have the right, uh, you know, effective dispositions to receiving. St. Thomas says that reverence for the Eucharist consists in both love and fear. Love gives us the desire to receive, but fear can lead us to refrain from receiving from time to time. St. Thomas quotes St. Augustine, who said that he wouldn't criticize those who receive the Lord with joy or those who don't receive the Lord because of filial fear. But what's interesting is that St. Thomas somewhat corrects St. Augustine, or he qualifies St. Augustine on this point. He says, St. Thomas says, after he quotes St. Augustine, St. Thomas says, Scripture always encourages love over fear. And so when St. Peter says to the Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, Jesus responds to him, do not be afraid. So St. Thomas is writing the Summa for, especially for Dominican friars, who will be preaching to the faithful and hearing confessions, providing for the, the care of souls. And so he evidently wants priests to counsel the faithful to receive communion as often as they're well disposed and not to refrain more than necessary out of fear. Uh, I have come across people who seem to think that it's a virtue not to receive communion. You know, one time a seminarian uh, I was having, I was sharing a meal with a few people and a seminarian across from me uh, was bragging about how long it had been since he had received communion, as if this was a kind of indication of his humility towards the sacrament. 
But St. Gregory the Great says, and St. Thomas quotes him, he is truly humble who is not obstinate in rejecting what is commanded for his good. So I think if we take St. Thomas's advice, we'll try to benefit from attending the sacrifice of the Mass as often as possible and also receiving the sacrament as often as we can, even daily if possible. Knowing that God instituted the sacrament as a remedy and a source of hope for us, not for, as something for us to be afraid of. And another practical point we can take away from St. Thomas's teaching is the importance of spiritual communion. The Catholic theological tradition maintains that there are two ways of eating the body of Christ, sacramentally and spiritually. Eating sacramentally is receiving the Eucharist under the species of bread and wine. But it's clearly not enough to eat the Eucharist sacramentally. We also need to eat the sacrament spiritually, which is to receive the effect of the sacrament. And that effect is being united to Christ through faith and charity. This means that the perfect reception of the sacrament occurs when we eat in both ways, receiving the body of the Lord sacramentally and being united to him spiritually. But this twofold eating doesn't always happen. For example, if someone receives the Eucharist unworthily, they truly may eat the body of Christ sacramentally, but not eat spiritually because they're not united to Christ even when they receive the sacrament. But it's also possible to receive the Eucharist spiritually and not sacramentally. When we desire a sacrament, we can partake of its fruits. And we know this especially in the case from baptism from desire, or baptism of desire. We can partake of the fruits of a sacrament through desire. And this means that by the desire for receiving the Eucharist, we can be united to Christ. And so we can eat the sacrament spiritually and receive its fruits to some degree, even without receiving it sacramentally. And this is very good news because it means we can receive the fruits of the sacrament of the Eucharist whenever we want. Obviously, this presupposes that we're receiving it sacramentally when we can, right? Otherwise, it's not a real desire, you know, you know, it's questionable whether you really desire it if you don't receive it when you have the opportunity. Um, but provided we don't have the opportunity when we desire it, provided we do desire it, we can partake of its fruits. So we should all be trying to attend Mass regularly uh, as much as possible and receiving the sacrament as often as we're well prepared because this is the most perfect way of receiving the sacrament uh, of, of eating the body of Christ. But even if our Weekly schedules can't accommodate more frequent masses, or if we've already maxed out our schedule in attending daily mass, we can all increase the frequency of our spiritual communions. And so if you haven't already taken it up during the multi-moon quarantine last year, it would be good practice to take up making regular acts of spiritual communion. If you can't go to daily mass, make an act of spiritual communion every morning. If you're already going to Mass, say in the morning, make an act of spiritual communion in the evening. St. Leonard of Port Maurice says, if you practice the holy exercise of spiritual communion several times each day, within a month you'll see your heart completely changed. And you can easily find on the internet good formulas for making acts of spiritual communion. Uh, Any good act of spiritual communion should include an act of faith, 
in the Lord's real presence in the Eucharist, an expression of desire to receive the sacrament, right? And asking Christ to come spiritually into your heart and soul. And a thanksgiving, right? Which acknowledges that Christ has in fact come to visit your soul and united you to himself, right? As much as your faith and charity allow. So by frequent sacramental reception of the Eucharist and spiritual communions, we will hopefully be able to end our lives like St. Thomas did, who when he received the Eucharist for the last time, prayed aloud, I receive you the price of the redemption of my soul. I receive you the viaticum of my journey, for love of whom I have studied, kept vigil, and labored. If we regularly worship and receive Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, recalling his passion, being filled with grace, and being prepared for heaven, we will, God willing, see him no longer under the sacramental species of bread and wine, but in his own proper species. That is, God willing, we will see with our own eyes his glorified body and feed on him forever, who is the bread of angels. As St. Thomas prayed in the Adorote Devote, Jesus, whom I look at shrouded here below, I beseech thee, send me what I thirst for so. Someday to gaze on thee face to face in light and be blessed forever with thy glory's sight. Amen. That's it. Amen. (laughs) So any questions, comments, liturgical qualms? So if I, this was um, something that came up for me recently with a friend, someone who said to me, like, you know, like like a, a, a devout and practicing Catholic who was feeling kind of miserably because he said, like, when I received communion, I don't know if this was, like, just recently or ongoing, like, he said, I just don't feel anything when I receive communion. And I really, like, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I was really, like, not sure if it was maybe better to lean towards a here's some things you could do to try to feel something <laughs> or like sometimes you just don't feel anything and that's okay like because those things like those were both i think mm. have their place but i was wondering if you had any thoughts on that uh, so uh elizabeth yeah elizabeth was asking uh she has a friend who uh was you know upset because whenever he was receiving uh the eucharist he wasn't feeling anything and so the question was, you know, should he be counseled in ways to be able to feel something or should he be uh, encouraged to uh, act in faith and not rely on the expectation or the enjoyment of feelings in the reception of the Eucharist? Um, and kind of what's a good way of going about that? You know, obviously in individual cases, you know, discernment is required. You know, what is the reason why he's not feeling something? You know, I mean, there's many reasons why that could be the case. Uh, you know, if, if there's not a sufficient consideration of what's going on, you know, you can consider more attentive meditation on what the sacrament is, what it represents, what it's accomplishing. Uh, and if you really uh, know and believe that Christ is present, I think in a lot of cases, you know, that should trigger some type of effective response. Um, and, and I believe it's the teaching of the church that one of the effects of the sacrament is spiritual refreshment. Uh, although then John of the cross says that that can perhaps be delayed to a later time. So what do you do if you don't actually feel anything? Um, uh, so, I mean, if there's some type of lack of due 
meditation on the friend's part, or perhaps some type of spiritual obstacle. This can happen in the spiritual life. We can have uh, certain unrepentant sin or attachments that can hinder us from receiving uh, kind of, you know, there's a certain lack of openness on our part. There can be, you know, psychological reasons for, you know, repressed effective responses. So there's, it's very hard to tell exactly why someone might be having that type of response. At the same time, it's far more important to emphasize what you said, uh, that Christ is really present. And, you know, I'm sure when Jesus was instituting the Eucharist with his passion and death in front of him, he was not, you know, he had the, you might say, good feelings of him being happy of instituting the sacrament. And yet he also knew he was going to his death. Uh, so, you know, what type of feelings should we be having, you know, um, but by far the more important thing is to counsel someone that, you know, our approach to the sacrament should be informed primarily by the theological virtues, which are, you could say, deeper than the emotions. And the problem is if in the spiritual life at any point we are too attached to, too, uh, too much pursuing, uh, either more sensible consolations or even deeper spiritual consolations that can really inhibit our ability to function through the theological virtues and grow in union with Christ, which is the substantial union is, uh, I mean, the, the, uh, the, I'm speaking analog analogously, like the more substantial union with Christ is accomplished through grace, through the theological virtues. Um, which is why you have someone like St. Uh, Mother, yeah, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, you know, who's in adoration, writes on a little note to send to the priest's friend, you know, what is that, right? Because her lack of sensible, uh, her lack of sensible, uh, you know, consolation in the presence of the Eucharist was so significant that she didn't actually doubt his real presence, but was even seeking consolation. She just wanted someone to remind her that Christ was present, right? And so if Mother Teresa could be so significantly lacking in uh, sensible consolation in Eucharistic adoration, you know, we shouldn't trouble ourselves too much if we're lacking feeling, right? But should follow her example and live in faith, right? Because it's by faith, it's by faith alone that our, our intellects are informed who is present. Um, and, you know, if you're interested in kind of how to deal with feelings and emotions, get a good guide to St. John of the Cross and, uh, and he will inspire you. He will inspire fear and, uh, and also um, a lot of good wisdom in how to grow. And he always pushes, John of the Cross always pushes you real hard to move to the next level of not relying on self, not, not focusing on anything but God alone. And that God has revealed that Christ is present. Christ loves me. And therefore, I'm receiving him with love, right? No matter what it feels like. If I'm being crucified, if I'm being martyred, if I don't feel anything, who cares, right? It's Jesus Christ. That's what matters. Kitty. Yeah, I guess like what do you think that, that would, what would your sense be of like, what does it really mean in 
Yeah. So thank you. So Katie's question is, is, uh, for me to elaborate more on, uh, what I think, uh, or what I think St. Thomas thinks, uh, are, or what I think the church thinks about proper dispositions, uh, in receiving the Eucharist. Uh, and we have cases, for example, of someone who is at mass, who's distracted for the whole mass. Are they properly disposed to receive communion? They're worried. Am I properly disposed to receive communion? What should you do? Uh, what is the distinction between um, my actual disposition and my awareness of my disposition? And I think, you know, these questions bring up the significance of having a regular spiritual director or confessor who can help you make good judgments based on the personal knowledge of you and kind of regularly what your dispositions may be. Um, you know, my impression from St. Thomas, oh, I, I'd say it's more than an impression, is that St. Thomas is very averse to excessive introspection. Uh, and so he's far more concerned with kind of objective reality than, uh, and so he, he, you know, he just gives us these, you know, you need love, you need fear, and then receive with confidence. Um, so my, I mean, my counsel would be, you know, if these are questions that are coming up regularly for someone, it would be something to discuss, especially with a spiritual director or a regular confessor who can help you kind of determine what may be the reasons for your concerns what, you know, and kind of evaluating you when you're approaching the Eucharist, what are your actual dispositions? You know, because an objective observer is going to be able to sometimes reflect a lot better on what your state is than maybe you yourself. In terms of someone who's distracted during all of Mass, you know, I think this is one of the helpful things about studying the spiritual tradition of the church is you find things like St. Teresa of Avila, who says that you can go through an entire time of uh, like a whole time of prayer where you're in a state of uh, your will is in union with God and your imagination wanders the entire time. And yet you're in a deeper form of prayer than, you know, like most people. Uh, and so it helps to know, you know, the different powers of the soul, how they operate. Um, you know, it, the, um, the spiritual writers are pretty clear that intentional distraction is sinful, right? If we're sitting there and you're like, I'd rather look at this girl here at mass, right? Then the Eucharist, Right. If you're kind of making the decision to willfully distract from what's going on, that's at least venially sinful. Right. And so, you know, that's a problem. Um, but if it's kind of unwilled, it, I would say, you know, it's an imperfection. But, uh, you know, and maybe more depending on how you're disposing yourself for mass and the time previously. Uh, but it's not something that I would at all counsel someone to be worried about. Uh, I think it's pretty common advice from good spiritual authors. If you're distracted, just go back to focusing. Um, and say you're distracted through a whole mass, you know, apologize to the Lord, promise you'll get more sleep the next day, promise you'll focus more, entrust to him the problems that are obviously on your mind, ask him for the grace to focus more, and then trust more in his mercy uh, then in kind of this, th then kind of having an expectation of yourself to, to bring like a perfect person to the Eucharist, right? Um, my inclination would be to always counsel someone on the side of mercy and to say, provided you're not conscious of mortal sin, it would be better to receive um, and to trust the Lord, the workings of his grace, 
and just try and focus. Yeah, that's that's all I've got. I haven't studied, honestly, I haven't studied kind of the moral tradition on the disposition. So I can't say more than what I think the various spiritual authors that I've read would say about that situation. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man, a liturgical qualm. Go for it. There were numerous instances where something happened on campus, like a student goes missing. Um, like the, the whole community is affected by this. And so um, we as the liturgy team come together and say, how do we craft a, um, a, a liturgy or a, a space for the community to come together and pray for this, um, uh, this one event? Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously when you have a global pandemic, that happens to um, so I appreciated that you were um, speaking to the effect of, um, you know, what the Christian community has experienced. Um, and I think now that I've had some time to reflect on my subconscious anger towards God, that he personally took the first away because of pandemic. Um, I think so much of what I understand is Catholic is I, I take those things to liturgy. Like our, our community meets together in liturgy and brings um, these difficulties together. Um, but that wasn't something that we could do at the beginning of the pandemic. And now that you know things have kind of like little by little uh, opened back up, there hasn't been like a, okay, this is the start. And maybe we have a particular liturgy to um, recognize kind of the, this return to Eucharist. Um, especially for, um, I mean, I don't know any waking memory that um, the laity had been cut off from Eucharist for as many weeks as you had mentioned. Um, but it wasn't until you know midway through the pandemic that I began hearing about spiritual communion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the two types of reception weren't something that I had ever heard of. I think um, internally I, I understood I understood that, but um, it seemed like a um, like an insufficient way to try to make up for the fact that going to be. In- yeah, so uh, there are a lot of points there, uh, and it seems like no, it's okay. It seems to me, yeah, it seems to me that you know there's. Uh, you know, there's a there's a real grieving over the inaccessibility of the sacrament of the Eucharist to lay people during the pandemic, um, and certainly we can say that it is uh, Christ's will that the sacraments be available to the Christian people because He didn't institute them not to be available, right? So generally speaking, you know, it makes sense that we would be grieved, uh, and and the uh, kind of the making spiritual communions is. Uh, is a great practice, and yet, you know, it's it's not the same, right, as sacramental reception of the Eucharist. Uh, and so, kind of, what do we do now as we uh, come back to Mass? Um, you know, it's just the questions of global pandemic. You know, there, there's, uh, the Church has prayers and, and even particular Masses that can be offered, like, for times of uh, pestilence, you know. Uh, it's, it was amazing to me that those were not being offered. Um, like we have them. Why are we not saying them? Um, so, I mean, that's just kind of like one of my own frustrations during that time. Um, but I'm going to, for a moment, 
take off my teacher hat and put on my more prophetic hat, if I have one. And, and I will say, you know, whatever we make of the, the moral responsibility of persons during the pandemic and the availability or unavailability of the sacraments, uh, whatever evil we may impute to those who may be responsible for spreading the virus or uh, those who, you know, maybe unjustly in certain cases restricted access to the sacraments or were too lazy to make them available to us, right? No matter what we make of the actual moral responsibility of these persons, which ultimately we have to leave to God himself to judge, although we can make judgments about kind of the reasonability of certain public actions. Um, I think it's also useful in order for us not to be stuck in the kind of bitterness that you mentioned or anger to uh, seek in prayer to understand what God is doing. Because in all evil that God permits, he always wills a greater good. And so we may not obviously always understand what that greater good is. You know, that certainly that's not until heaven. You know, I stub my toe. God may not reveal to me in the moment why that happened, even though I can trust that it was for the greater good. Um, in something as significant as a global pandemic, uh, I think it is very useful and important, you know, as Jesus says, that we, we uh, look to the signs of the times and that we try and understand in prayer and through, you know, prophetic revelation, as much as God makes it available to us, what he's doing during this time. Because if there's some massive evil going on in the world, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And this means that we, I think, in order to kind of fully function as a prophetic people, we have to understand what God is doing, the good that he's doing, even in the midst of evil, so that we can always be, you know, as St. John Paul II says, an Alleluia people, an Easter people, you know, which is another phrase which may get on the nerves of some, uh, you know, of the younger faith-filled Catholics, but that doesn't mean it's any less true, that, we, that we're so filled with the good news of the gospel and the joy of the gospel, that no matter what evil is surrounding us internally or externally, they can't remove our joy, right? So what, uh, so what could the Lord be doing? This is where I put on what I mentioned before, the prophetic hat. You know, there is, a, uh, I think, a stream of Catholic prophetic thought that suggests that near the end of time, the sacraments will be increasingly more difficult to access for the faithful. Uh, and so this is on my own personal, this is not St. Thomas, this is just me, right? And maybe a few other sources that I've, that I've looked at. It seems to me that what we experienced in the pandemic, right? Again, prescinding from moral responsibility of anyone else, God gave us an opportunity, like a practice run, right? Because if really we ought to live from faith and hope and charity, uh, God does not abandon his people. And so we get, I think, perhaps a kind of practice run. Now, you know, if during this time of loss of access to the sacraments, we practice spiritual communion, we practiced uh, increasing our trust so that by the end of the pandemic, we trusted God even more than it started. Then, so, so a, you know, a communistic government or a, you know, uh, what, what do you call a government that's uh, about health <laughs> instead of um, instead of economics? You know, a government that runs everything by means of health care, right, restricts our access to the sacraments. We will know that they can't take God away from us, right? And that's a lot. That's the kind of confidence you want to have. So you can be like the early Christians, and uh, we can be like. Hey, remember the man you crucified, we're going to take that as our sign. What are you going to do to us? 
right? Uh, we want that kind of confidence that God cannot be removed from us, right? Whether they, what does St. Paul say in Romans uh, 8? I think it's Romans 8, like persecution or sword or famine, you know, we're counted to be uh, lambs to be slaughtered, you know, but the victory is overwhelmingly ours, you know? And so I think in, if, we, if we approach kind of world events with an awareness of God's real desire to communicate to us and to inform us of what he's doing where necessary, this can really help us get through times like this where we can say, all right, he taught us how to do spiritual communion, right? And so if they take communion away from us, they can't take the Lord away from us, you know. Um, I don't know. That's what just comes to, comes to mind.